0: Against you, girl, get back in bed. I feel lucky. I feel lucky, yeah. No Professor Doom gonna stand in my way. Mm, I feel lucky today.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobalowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me as always, he is the man who played Dr. Bob in the 2000 TV series, Manhattan, Arizona. Stephen Doblowski. Stephen, how are you doing today?
2: I am doing very good. David, ask me if I remember playing Dr. Bob.
1: Hey, Stephen, do you remember playing Dr. Bob in Manhattan, Arizona?
2: 100%. Finally, there is an episode. (laughs) that you have brought up that I remember. And one of the things I very much remembered about playing Dr. Bob was I had to do a scene with an elephant. And I mean a real elephant in a room. And they had the elephant trainer in the room. I played a um, veterinarian in Manhattan, Arizona. A Chad Everett was the star of this show. And we had great, great, great cast. It was a very funny show. But acting with an elephant is ex- is extreme. Well, it'll stick in your mind <laughs> because <laughs> you you realize you know. There's an old saying in the, I don't know if it's the Talmud, but there's an old saying like, where when you're driving an elephant, where do you go, David?
1: Uh, I don't know.
2: Wherever the elephant wants to go and that's the problem with acting with an elephant mm-hmm. you realize mm-hmm. with one move of this trunk and 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 they began the ep- they began the episode with the elephant sitting in the veterinary office and they had it open its mouth and they wanted me up there up by its trunk like looking in its nose I'm thinking like this elephant could kill me any second, but it didn't. <laughs> And life went on. But I have to say, I was very disappointed when Manhattan, Arizona wasn't picked up. And and we were on kind of not a network that did these kind of comedy shows. We were on USA or something back at the time. It was
1: USA Network in the summer of 2000. That said, in the time since then, USA Network, I think, has become really a juggernaut in terms of cable television.
2: Yeah, I think um, so. Uh, and back then, you know, we were kind of breaking ground as, uh, <laughs> as the in elephant terms was of, uh, breaking land. Yeah, TV shows yeah. To work with elephants. Right? That's right. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, you're very. You're on the forefront of that. Yeah. Uh, so Manhattan, Arizona ha- had thirteen episodes, five of which were unaired. So at in some vault somewhere, yeah, there is five episodes of Stephen Tobolowsky as Dr. Bob, the veterinarian. That have never been seen by the public. Do you ever? Does that ever haunt you, Stephen? That you're like I spent, you know, many many weeks learning those lines. That no one is ever going to see that
2: performance. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the and and this is why. This is why because I realized that a few years ago I always used to go see everything I did. And it was. Um, I would have TV parties whenever I played hotel clerk on some TV show or computer programmer, and we'd get all of our friends together and eat popcorn, and we'd cheer when I came on TV. But then I recognized pretty quickly after that that the experience of watching a finished product on television or in the movies is very different than performing it. For example, there would be nothing about Dr. Bob and the experience I had with that elephant in the room. Nothing would translate. Uh, and so I kind of keep them in two different piles, <laughs> piles. Speaking of working with elephants. You know, the piles, <laughs> the piles are important because you have to get a specialist to clean that floor in the room. When there is a pile from the elephant. (laughs) And see, that doesn't translate on film, David. Those experiences are gone forever. But no, it doesn't Nor does it bother me that Groundhog Day, as I mentioned, we have four or five versions of the opening scene in a vault somewhere depending on weather conditions. Doesn't bother me.
1: All right. Well, I'm glad you have a lot of peace about that, Stephen. Uh, (laughs) That said... You know, we are currently recording this in the midst of a global pandemic right now, and yep. Stephen, I know one of the things that has been curtailed is traveling. <laughs> uh, you used to travel quite a bit, both for work and also for leisure, uh, and I, I guess I was curious. Like we, we all have been basically been unable to travel. You, I, I've heard you basically rarely leave the house these days. Is that right?
2: That's no, no. I I don't go anywhere. I I go to grocery stores at like six thirty in the morning when no one is there, and I run home and you know go into the basement and lock myself up and wash my hands it's it's difficult time
1: do you have any interesting memories from when you used to travel
2: well i oh gosh so many but i'll tell you one one in particular and and this made a huge impact on me and that was a few years ago i was i was sitting in a hotel restaurant on the west coast of Scotland looking out at the ocean And Anne and I had come with our friends Richard and Julie for a good time. Unfortunately, Richard and I brought our golf clubs. It's been said that golf was invented to ruin nice days. That's true. But the catch is Scotland doesn't have nice days. At least it didn't when we were there. The month of May in Turnberry resembles spring in Antarctica. But it didn't matter. The game must go on. The marshals on Scottish golf courses warn unsuspecting tourists that they don't give rain checks. Part of the glory of the game is that you play in any and all weather conditions. And this is also motivated by the fact that they don't want to give you back your money. After a week of playing in a typhoon, I began to see the wisdom of their philosophy. Very few people are good at golf. Never will be. 95% of golfers don't need new clubs. They need new excuses. Golf in Scotland gives you every reason you could possibly want as to why you shot a 14 on a par 3. From rain, wind, hail, to mammals, be it marmot, beaver, or badger, taking your golf ball from the fairway into their dens. Footnote. At Glen Eagles, our caddy said that if a mammal takes your ball, the rules allow you to drop a new ball, one club link, from the hole in the ground where you think your ball disappeared with no penalty. If your ball lands in a pile of dung, regular drop, clean, and place rules apply, again, with no penalty. You'll still make a 14 on a par 3, but at least you'll have a good story. In spite of the physical hardships, golf in Scotland was inspiring. It inspired one to drink. I guess the positive side of living in perpetual gloom is that over the centuries, these hardy folk used their time indoors constructively. They developed over 400 types of scotch. Yeah. I looked at the clock in the restaurant. Even though it was before 10 a.m., the thought of hitting another dozen balls into the ocean inspired me to order a shot. I signaled to my waitress that I was ready. Ordering single malt scotch is a challenge. I'm always tempted to order the ones I can't pronounce. Then I look at the price. Yow. Sometimes single malts can surprise you. Most will cost around $12 to $15 a shot at a hotel, but you have to be careful. At the last hotel, they slipped one in the menu that cost $600 a shot. $600. At that price, I don't care how many consonants it's got. My waitress was a willowy young lady with a large flesh-colored bandage on her chest. The bandage stood out, It appeared to have seen more sunlight than she had. Her paleness wasn't sickly. No, she was elegant, almost translucent, like a medieval painting. After a few visits to my table, I determined she was too healthy to be recovering from a shotgun blast, and I asked her about the bandage. She said she had to wear it to cover her tattoo. It was against Hotel's policy to have employees with visible tattoos. I appreciated the hotel's position, not a fan of tattoos. Generally, I'm more comfortable with mistakes that are invisible. However, in this case, I thought a large tattoo above her breast would do more for my appetite than the idea that she was recovering from a sucking chest wound. She asked where I was from. I told her Los Angeles, and she blushed and said, Oh, America, I wish I could go there. Why? I asked. Oh, don't you know? "'Anything is possible in America. "'It's a place where I could find my dreams "'and make them come true.' "'What are your dreams?' I asked. "'I have no idea,' she said. "'I grew up here in the country. "'When I was in school, I longed to leave and go to work. "'I left. I hated working. "'I thought it would be better in the big city. "'Longed to leave. Went to Glasgow. "'After a year there, hated it. "'Wanted to go back home. I did.' "'I got this job at the hotel. "'I've been here two years now, "'and all I could think of is America,' she laughed. "'I suppose that's human nature to always be dissatisfied, "'to long for a different place. "'Might as well get used to it.' "'Might as well,' I said. "'She sighed. "'Oh, well, no matter where you go, it's always morning.' "'I put my menu down. "'What did you just say? "'No matter where you go, it's always morning?' Wow, that's beautiful. W- what does that mean? I've never heard that expression before. Does it mean that we're always starting over or there's always darkness at the beginning of anything, that we always feel like we're at the end of night? She looked at me quizzically and said, not morning, morning. I, I don't understand you, I said. I didn't say morning. I said morning. I fed her Scottish accent into my mental thesaurus. I calculated for distortions and vowel sounds and absence of consonants. I finally got it. Oh, oh, I get it. Not mourning, but mourning, like mourning becomes electra. Everywhere we go, we feel loss, like a death. And you have to grieve and then pull yourself together and move on. She laughed and said, I must enunciate better. You don't understand. Not mourning and not mourning. Mourning. No matter where you go, it's always moaning. People complain. We're never satisfied. Too quiet, too noisy, too empty, too full. In the town or in the country, it's always moaning. Inspiring. In the time it took to order a single malt, my waitress completely by accident described the ways we're inclined to see the world. Moaning, mourning, and mourning. This is not a new concept. Shakespeare summarized the notion in Hamlet in that there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. I was never a fan of comparative reality. My mother raised us in a world without nuance. Whenever anything bad happened to me, like getting a tetanus shot or getting stitches in my foot— My mother would rub my back and wipe my tears away and say something like, Well, sweetheart, at least you weren't trapped in a burning building. This was meant to give me comfort. The world is a situational deck of playing cards. As long as you didn't draw Storming the Beach at Iwo Jima or the Children's Crusade, you shouldn't complain no matter how much it hurt. This works until you draw Breaking Your Neck Falling Off of a Horse in Iceland or Being Held Hostage at Gunpoint. Then you're on your own. But now I see the hidden power of my mother's worldview. It forces us to create a new story. It's the story that transports us into the fifth dimension and the unexpected comforts found there. Footnote Earlier in my podcast life, I had a small revelation when I discovered the existence of the fifth dimension, the dimension of narrative. Our elementary school science teachers taught us we live in three dimensions, length, width, depth. We believe them. Science fiction movies taught us to respect time as the fourth dimension. We believe that too. Otherwise, the Terminator makes no sense at all. Einstein thought the fourth dimension was the key to understanding the universe. He theorized that time changes as we approach the speed of light. It's probably true. In my experience, when in doubt, agree with Einstein. The one thing Einstein did not talk about at length was the pain the fourth dimension inflicts on us when daylight savings time screws up the space time continuum. Sidebar. I used to only think that spring forward hurt me, losing the hour of sleep. As I've gotten older, I've also come to detest fall back. When I was young, fallback was a blessing. If you had a big test or were striking the set or were drinking too much beer, fallback was the space-time band-aid that could cure all. The extra hour was so precious. But now I reach the age where I usually go to sleep so early, fallback is wasted on me. It started a few years ago. I noticed I couldn't stay up for The Tonight Show on a regular basis. I assumed it was because Johnny was gone or... There were too many commercials. Then I started passing out during Law & Order reruns. My decline continued. Presently, I can't even make it through House Hunters International, which in most places in the civilized world is on at 9 p.m. I look back fondly at the years when fallback held more possibilities than just having to get up four times at night to pee instead of three. Footnote on the footnote. There is something additionally depressing about reaching the age where House Hunters International is considered late-night television. And you can't escape it. And by it, I don't mean getting older. You could always die young. I mean House Hunters International. Last year, Anne and I took a trip to Helsinki. The Airbnb we stayed at had a Finnish television set operated by incomprehensible remote controls. I mustered up the courage to pick one up and push buttons... And I guessed right. The television popped on. It was House Hunters International, but not the Finnish version where the young couple from Espoo moves to a three-bedroom in Oklahoma City and are thrilled to have sunshine and space. No. No, no, I would have enjoyed that in a kind of unclean America first sort of way. It was exactly the same show I watched in Los Angeles where the young couple from Colorado Springs moves to a closet in Hamburg so they could drink coffee. It wasn't until the trip to Finland that I recognized the real attraction of House Hunters International. The show is driven by a fearless exploration of the power of the fifth dimension. People on the show almost never move to the farm in Bulgaria with no electricity because of concerns of time or space. They are driven, consciously or unconsciously, by the story they think they're telling. The story we choose affects the values we assign to everything, what we hope for, what we fear, what we believe. Our beliefs, in turn, determine how we allot our time when we fall in love, why we leave home, why we decide to live in a closet in Hamburg or move to Los Angeles to be an actor instead of staying in college and getting a master's degree like our parents hoped. The fifth dimension is deceptive in its simplicity. It can't be described through equations, only in storylines. And surprisingly, there aren't that many, maybe a handful. Legend has that Tolstoy said that there are only two stories. A stranger comes to town, and a man goes on a journey. The actual quotation has now been attributed to writer John Gardner, who died tragically in 1982. Gardner's two story ideas are good, if you're the omnipotent narrator watching dispassionately from a safe distance. But when you're living your story, events are more confusing. Rather than getting lost in twists and turns, we usually grab onto broad mythic arcs that have a good track record. In my experience, I think most of us believe we are telling the hero's journey, even if we're villains. When you're living the hero's journey, Beliefs are more important than facts. When we want facts, we usually turn to science. These days, the public both reveres and knows nothing about science. Maybe that's not as strange as it sounds. It's often easier to love something you know nothing about. The decline in general knowledge about science has been going on a long time. Part of it is that science just got too complicated. Charm quarks, anti-quarks, flavor, quantum numbers representing the difference between charm quarks and charm anti-quarks. I mean, give me a break. It's enough to make you sick. But that's only part of it. Science made itself unattractive at the same time marijuana became more popular than peanut butter. And no one wanted to learn anything except guitar chords. This parting of the ways became formalized in the 1970s college students found an exotic way to avoid taking science classes. It was called a BFA. When that worked, they doubled down with MFAs. When I was at SMU, art and drama majors rejoiced when they were told they could satisfy their science requirement by taking something called climatology. That's the study of weather. Clouds, rain, thermometers... Over the years, the bar has been lowered to the point where in the current UCLA list of courses they offer, there is something called Cosmetic Sciences, an Overview of Skin Care and Skin Care Products. Now, I'm sure the course has benefits, like fewer blackheads, but it's not like the old days of memorizing the periodic tables or algebraic equations for vectors, velocity, and momentum. In spite of not having a working knowledge of the scientific method— I suspect our present-day villagers won't be storming Frankenstein's castle with torches. It's more likely they'd be watching the monster being resurrected by lightning with silent admiration. I was watching television news the other day, and a scientist was expounding on the superiority of this time in history. He said today's analytic worldview provides a safety net that past generations didn't enjoy because science is fact-based. That sounded odd to me. Maybe the man wasn't really a scientist at all, but someone like me, a man who plays a scientist on television. But that's not the way we learned it in Miss Milky's chemistry class. I I don't mean to play with words, but in this case, I think it matters. Science is not fact-based. If it were, why was Ptolemy wrong? and Aristotle, and Galileo, and Newton and Einstein on occasion, and even Stephen Hawking, who before his death said that his Nobel Prize work on black holes was incorrect. It's true that we know more now than we did a hundred years ago. We could tell Ptolemy that the earth is not a sphere and Aristotle that the world is not at the center of the solar system, and Newton and Einstein that their numbers were wrong but close enough for us to understand the complexities of gravity and tell Stephen Hawking that at least he gave Christopher Nolan the idea for interstellar. Science is not fact-based. It is hypothesis-based. A scientist gets a notion and proceeds to find facts to back up his ideas— or he stumbles on some unexpected facts and searches for the hypothesis that connects the dots. Either way, it's a belief system and not a system of absolute truth. I don't see how it can be. Every science I can think of uses some kind of instrument. The quality of a discovery is only as good as the instrument used. Galileo's telescope was better than Ptolemy's but not as good as the Very Large Array Telescope in New Mexico. Then comes the human interface, the eye of the reader, to see what is there, and the inventive mind to put the pieces together to conjure up the narrative. Science is a unique mixture of dream and fact that makes it akin to prophecy. Newton's first law of motion states that an object moving in a straight line will remain in motion in a straight line, unless acted upon by an outside force. This is no different than the theory that the Ten Commandments make civilization better. In the latter case, we are the objects in motion, and the force of the idea, thou shalt not steal, affects our direction. Like a scientist, the eye of Moses saw the world through the lens of oppression. He processed these experiences with the belief that all people have an intrinsic value— That is the hypothesis. If that hypothesis is true, when we steal another's goods or their life or their time or the truth, we diminish them. If we follow the law, the result would be more tolerance, peace, prosperity, and ultimately more happiness. It became the eighth law of human gravity. The scientist and the artist are alike in this respect. All either of them can do is look into the darkness and see what story they could
0: tell. I was a bird that loved to fly, catching the wind as it went south. And I could touch every inch of sky, and the sweetest songs trilled.
2: One afternoon, Anne and I were on the hero's journey. Literally, we were walking down the street to the park. Anne was going to the track in her daily attempt to register ten thousand steps. Sidebar: Anne insists that walking ten thousand steps a day is the secret to a long life. I would argue it's antibiotics. I've walked ten thousand steps in a day before, and it was a mistake. If man were meant to walk that much, God wouldn't have invented golf carts. I had decided I was going to sit on a bench at the park, learn my lines, and if I got tired, I could watch Anne for inspiration. In English class, we learned that the hero's journey is a voyage into the unknown. Our teacher spent most of the time talking about Odysseus encountering the Cyclops or being enchanted by the sirens. They passed over what I think is the essential element of the story home. Lord of the Rings wouldn't be meaningful without the Shire, without the everyday. It's the place that we come from and the place we long to return. For Anne and me, a walk down our street best describes everyday. It's always the same. and It's always different. Mundane and unforgettable. First, we pass the bottle brush trees in varying stages of bloom Across the street is the dying tree with the hive of wild bees coming and going. Somewhere on the way, we see the German Shepherd with the paralyzed back legs being taken for a walk. His rear end is strapped into some sort of scooter rig with wheels. I don't know who his owners are, but I love them. They've walked their crippled dog in rain and shine at least twice a day for years, I'm certain that their kindness has bestowed a blessing on the entire neighborhood. Overhead, the squirrels run across the power lines. Mockingbirds comment on the squirrels and reigning above them all are the crows, the sentries of the neighborhood. I used to hate crows, ugly birds with their incessant cawing. I had a conversion in 2008. I broke my neck. I had to sit outside for large chunks of the day during my recovery. It was all I could do for months. I was forced to observe and learn. The crows communicate about danger. If a hawk stops in a tree, they will surround it. They will dive-bomb the bird until it leaves. Had I listened to the crows, our pet rabbits probably wouldn't have vanished from our backyard. The Council of Crows announces births, deaths, They pick leaders. They have regular meetings. Now when I heard their cause, I stop and look to the skies with respect for their vigilance. As we get closer to the park, we see more humans. Gardeners blowing the streets, our mailman making his stops, neighbors on their way to the track to walk their 10,000 steps. The ordinary is the picture frame of the hero's journey. What propels the story is the unexpected. In this case, there were two people walking away from the park, a young man and a young woman in their 20s. I'd never seen them in the neighborhood before. They looked ragged in a banana public sort of way. They both wore expensive faded jeans. Hers had large pre-torn holes on each thigh. In fact, there was more thigh than pants. She wore bright, bright red lipstick. She looked like one of the pretty zombies in a Living Dead movie. Her boyfriend was tall and wiry, shaggy red hair. He had a wild look in his eye. My first impression was that he was a murderer and that he needed a bath. As they walked past us, he turned and looked at me. He did a little double-take. I figured he probably recognized me from Ghostbusters or some other movie I wasn't in. We went our separate ways. Anne and I arrived at the park. She looked at her Fitbit, assessed her current step count, did some mental arithmetic, and started walking. I picked out the bench that had the less visible bird poop on it, opened up my script, and we were alone. Well, not all alone. There were four very old people playing tennis. I could tell from the way they held their rackets that they probably knew how to play several decades ago, but now their inability to run or hit the ball made the game look like a form of elder abuse. Still, I recognize an important part of the future as honoring the past. The basketball courts were deserted. There were two kids by the swings throwing sand at one another. On the track with Ann were a handful of joggers. Each one looked like they were at death's door. Sidebar, when did physical activity become so hard? Did it start when televisions got remote controls? Then as a species... Did we just get soft? It took me several years to realize you don't usually drop dead all at once. You do it a little bit at a time, so you get used to the idea. Then when you do drop dead, it doesn't come as such a shock. I went back to reading. My part in this movie was to play a doctor. I played lots of doctors, all kinds of doctors. I even played a dead doctor on the television series Dead Last. I come back as a ghost to help with an appendectomy. My mother always wanted me to be a doctor. I hope she was able to see the irony. We rarely read the fine print that comes with an answered prayer. After going through my first scene, I got that feeling, and we've all felt it. It started at the back of my neck and made its way to the pit of my stomach. I sensed I was being watched. I look up, nothing. Went back to the script but the feeling didn't go away. It intensified. I scanned the park one more time. Nothing had changed. Looked over the parking lot. Nothing. I tried to go back to my lines, but now I was so overwhelmed by paranoia, I couldn't even see the words. One of my best and worst qualities is that I trust my instincts. I decided we should go home. I went to fetch Anne. As I walked across the deserted softball fields, I sensed motion out of the corner of my eye. By the trees, next to the tennis courts. It was the young man and woman we ran into in the street. Huh, why were they here? Weren't they walking away from the park? Where did they come from? Fortunately, I've always been someone who prefers to think the best of people. I didn't want to assume these two grifters were predators prowling in the neighborhood. What was that look he gave me in the street, that little double-take? Maybe it wasn't for Ghostbusters after all. Maybe I'd look like prey. And if they could catch me alone for a few seconds, I would be distracted by his girlfriend's torn jeans and thighs long enough for him to mace me, beat me into unconsciousness, and steal my wallet. It was just a theory. As I walked toward Ann, I saw the young couple walking in a parallel course to me at the far end of the park. I looked at my script, but I wasn't. It was a ruse to sneak a peek at the two of them. The young man appeared to be having a conversation with his trashy girlfriend as they walked toward the far gate that led back to our street. Even though I only glanced at them for a fraction of a fraction of a second, I got the distinct impression that his girlfriend was only pretending to look at her boyfriend. It was a ruse, the same ruse I was using. Her eyes looked past him to me. I felt her gaze. And then she looked back to the Neanderthal and reported my progress. I caught up to Anne. We have to get back to the house. Stephen, they have a bathroom here, Anne said. I don't need to go to the potty. We just need to go. But I haven't finished my 10,000 steps, Anne said. Okay, you could do 15,000 tomorrow. Anne looked at me with a mixture of irritation and concern. One of the things I love about her is that 99.9% of the time, she yields to concern. All right, let's go, Anne sighed as she checked her Fitbit. We started for the gate, but I had second thoughts. Once we left the park and started walking home, it would be easy for the bushwhackers to make up ground behind us. They could discover where we live, stake us out, pick their moment, and rob us at will. I stopped at the gate. What's wrong? Asked Ann. Plan B? What was plan A? Ann said as she looked at me now with irritation. Just a second. I'm thinking. What's going on? Ann asked. I'm not sure. Maybe nothing. The only advantage I have in a situation like this is that I was a professional actor. I have the ability to make slight adjustments to a narrative on the fly. I decided to try to smoke out their intentions. What if I forgot something? Yeah? I unraveled years of improvisational training. I rifled through the pages of my script. I looked concerned, then confused. Did you lose something, asked Dan? No, I'm just acting. Follow me. I'll explain it all later. Instead of leaving the park, we walked back toward my bench. Pause. So... What did the young couple do? If this narrative were a piece of paranoid fiction cooked up by my brain, they would have continued on their way, right? They would have left the park, walked on down the street, whatever. However, if what I sensed were accurate, they would have to adjust and find some way to wait for us. So, what did the young couple do? They stopped at the gate, chatted, and then began strolling back toward the tennis courts.
0: Well, it's a strange old game to learn it slow One step forward and it's back to go You're standing on the throttle, you're standing on the brake In the groove till you make a mistake Sometimes you to the windshield Sometimes you're the bug Sometimes it all comes together, baby. Sometimes you're a fool in love Sometimes you're the Louisville slugger, baby Sometimes you're the ball Sometimes it all comes together, baby. Sometimes you're gonna lose it all
2: You have to remember this whole cascade of events began from the feeling that someone was watching me, even though no one was. Or were they? The combination of the feeling of being watched with no visual evidence of a watcher led to a feeling of dread. And that dread led to my creating an equally dreadful narrative. Science has offered a theory as to why we get the feeling that someone is watching us even when our senses tell us that no one is. The answer is simple, but unfathomably complex. We probably are being watched. I love the bit of folk wisdom that you don't know what you don't know. I've always found this comforting, especially in show business where you never know where you stand. There's always the possibility that things are better than they seem. (laughs) Yeah, usually they're not, but you don't know ignorance is bliss. This theory proposes the opposite. It suggests you can know what you don't know. In 2013, they did a study at the University of Illinois involving a patient who was cortically blind, meaning that his blindness came from damage to his visual cortex. In a practical sense, the patient could not see. In the experiment, the patient was shown a series of pictures of faces looking at him or looking away. Now, even though he could not see the pictures, his brain apparently could. When shown pictures of faces with eyes looking at him, the amygdala, the area of the brain that registers threat or arousal, responded. This led to the hypothesis that our senses are picking up signals we're not aware we are receiving. We're not only seeing what we don't know we're seeing, but the processing power of our brains is so great we're continually fabricating theories as to what all of this data means. The result is that we're constantly creating and rewriting our narrative. Our hero's journey is informed by what we know and what we don't know and by what we don't know we know. It makes everything we do part fact and part dream. This could be what we call intuition. Part of understanding the fifth dimension is recognizing when our narrative changes. I suspect the hero's journey is one of the most popular narratives for several reasons. You could do it by yourself, and you can always stop when you reach a happy ending. One of the least popular narratives is hunter-hunted, especially when you're the hunted. I grew up with the hunter-hunted narrative. In our neighborhood in Oak Cliff, and at school, there were always bullies looking for someone to torment. After getting a pitchfork in my foot and someone shooting our cat for fun, I developed a new adaptation to the hunter-hunted story. I became the man who never was. When I saw them coming, I went the other way. Avoidance. Not dramatic, but effective. And a note of caution, if you try this when you're in a relationship, you'll be told you need to go to therapy. For all of the nastiness I encountered at Jefferson Davis Elementary and at Keese Park, it wasn't until college and my struggles with my drama teacher, Joan Potter, that I had to rethink the hunter-hunted narrative. I was 19. I was her student. She was a bully beyond anything I had ever experienced. There was nowhere to hide except to drop out of the theater department, which was exactly what she wanted. In the words of Jeff Richter, one of my fellow graduate students at the University of Illinois, all of us are metamorphic rocks. Under enough heat and pressure, we all will flow. It was in Joan Potter's classes I learned how to flow. Here's what I discovered about the Hunter Hunted storyline. When you are the victim... The predator already has a notion of who and what you are, what you are seeking, and what you're willing to bargain away. But most importantly, they have an image of what you will look like when you're afraid. The key to survival is learn to look different. Bullies have a weakness. They're predictable. They rely on force to make their point, not imagination. In the rock-paper-scissors game of life, imagination is much more powerful. I defeated Joan Potter not by challenging her or by avoiding her, but by seeking what I wanted in a way that wasn't on the map. Imagination taught me where to go. Suspecting that she would use any means to keep me from graduating, I secretly took my graduate exam a year and a half early. She couldn't imagine that possibility. Victory was mine But it was Joan Potter who forced me to use my imagination. And it was my theater history teacher, Tony Graham White, that assisted me by agreeing to give me the graduate exam early and keeping it a secret. Both of Tony's acts were extraordinary when you consider the unbending nature of academia. The net result was that in an unexpected way, Joan Potter was one of my most effective teachers. And Tony Graham White was certainly one of my most inspirational. In my situation at the park, I wasn't sure if this couple was up to no good or my paranoia had gotten the better of me. But if we were going to play hunter-hunted, I had experience in flipping a script. Ann and I got back to my bench. I pretended to look around for something mythical I had lost. While I searched, I snuck a peek. The couple had started walking across the park in our direction. Anne, look at me. She did. The couple we passed in the street is here at the park. I think they're following me. I stopped Anne mid-eye roll. Anne, just indulge me. Do what I do and walk where I walk. So as not to be mistaken for the hunted, I turned and started walking toward the couple. What are we doing? asked Anne taking the wrong way home, I said. We walked quickly past Bonnie and Clyde in the middle of the park. Then I surprised everyone, including Ann, by jogging briefly to widen the separation between us. Footnote. I allow myself to jog 100 feet a year. Now, I could do this all at once or break it down into smaller units. I usually save my jogging allowance to use at airports. But this year I've been working almost exclusively in Los Angeles, so I blew my year's worth of exertion this one afternoon. When I got to the tennis courts, I looked over my shoulder. The young hoodlum stood in the middle of the park looking back at us. Anne, let's go this way. We left the park by the gate farthest from our street and started walking toward Ventura Boulevard. There's no way home if we go this way, Anne said. I know, I know, we'll have to double back. We took an indirect two-mile walk down completely wrong streets in the opposite direction of our home. We made it back as the sun was setting, but there was no sign of the criminals. Annie, I'm sorry. I know that all seemed crazy. It doesn't matter. Ann smiled as she checked her Fitbit. I got my 10,000 steps. She showed me the readout. Like I said, it's the secret to a long life. And she may have been right. And the hero's journey continues.
0: I was a cloud that loved to drift, Offering shade to lay upon. And the greenest grass was my gift, And a summer day was my song. I'm no cloud anyone can see. There's just dust instead of green. It's just a dream. It's just a dream. To be a cloud drifting free.
2: I would argue that the fifth dimension is more important than time, space, or even money. When it comes to the choices we make. We don't feel like we have to win the war if our narrative tells us that occasionally we will win the day. When we believe there's hope in our story, we have the energy to take the next step. If there's victory in your narrative, you will be happier. That's why humans give out so many awards. I was a wild child. My parents sent me to my room. My teachers made me stand in the corner. But I never thought I was a bad kid. Just misunderstood. That was my narrative. Still, it was a big day in my life when I was awarded the best citizen award in my first grade class, just like Duane, who I considered the best student I had ever seen. I cherished that ribbon. If I were born in today's world, I wouldn't have gotten that ribbon. I would have gotten Ritalin. Victory or defeat can all come from the same set of facts. It depends on the story. After 40 years of acting professionally in Los Angeles, I moved into that rare category of performers that are bald and still work. Young actors ask me for advice all the time, and here's what I used to say. Get into an acting class, not because you need to learn to act, but because classes are a great conduit for information. You'll find out what plays are going into rehearsal, what student films and webisodes are looking for actors, and who's casting what. Information is the key. All narratives are hypothesis-based. Facts foster beliefs. That requires all of us at some point to be good scientists. When I came out to Los Angeles in 1976, this was the advice I got. Four things. Get a job. Get an agent. Get a good job. Get a good agent. I was told that getting the job always comes first because agents are attracted to people who get their own work. Be patient. Eventually you'll get an audition. Auditions will turn into callbacks. Callbacks will eventually turn into jobs. Just stick to it. Good things will happen. If I were to analyze the advice given to me and the advice I used to give out, there's a common theme. It's part of the hero's journey narrative, self-determination. Take action. Don't wait for someone to give you something. Keep busy. Don't be discouraged. If you're able to do that, time is no longer your enemy. It becomes your next project. Well, that's fine as far as advice goes. But this year, (laughs) everything changed. Like Galileo, my telescope was good, but I missed a lot. Like Aristotle, everything I said sounded right, but I got some basic facts wrong, and it's only taken me 40 years to see it. This fall, I was working on Schooled, a spinoff of the Goldbergs' sidebar. School takes place in the 1990s, 10 years after the Goldbergs. I play the same character, Earl Ball, on both shows, 10 years apart. On the Goldbergs, I'm the principal of William Penn Academy, I'm schooled. I've been promoted to the Board of Education. This year, I noticed I wear the same clothes in both shows. I even wear the same two ties, 10 years apart. I understand the need for a production to economize, but the last time I did the Goldbergs, I found pages for my schooled script still folded up in my suit pants, killing any presumption I may have had that they send my clothes to the cleaners. So I was on the set of Schooled. And a 16-year-old boy was playing one of his first roles ever. He had no lines, but one of our main characters high-fives him as they pass each other in the hallway. The boy was there with his father. Both were very excited, very nervous to have the job. The father asked me before the big high-five scene if I had any advice to give his son. I looked at the boy. Gosh, when I was 16, I was a junior in high school. I had just been cast as Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie. I thought for sure this would make Julie Davis fall in love with me. Pause for an intrusive memory. It didn't. But I did take Julie out on a date. I just had gotten my driver's license, so I took her to Brennan's in downtown Dallas. Brennan's. It was a very fancy, schmancy restaurant. We had steak and bananas Foster but I was terrified I would have to order wine. I was too young to drink. I didn't know red from white, but I wanted to appear to be a man of the world. When the waiter arrived at our table, Julie stopped me from speaking. She said she was a Southern Baptist and didn't drink. Oh, thank God. So I looked at the young man and his father on the schooled set. Nothing came to the advice center of my brain. And I quickly thought through my first professional jobs in Los Angeles, and that's when I saw a new planet in the night sky. A fact from my narrative that I had completely overlooked. My first job on a television show was playing a wild rock and roll DJ, Caveman Carl, on Alice. Mindy Marin was the casting director. Now, I had auditioned for Mindy several times before in the preceding months. Never got a part. Never got a call back. Nothing. But for some reason, the caveman, Carl, they cast was out. Either he got sick or hurt, was being replaced, whatever. But it was the day of the show. They needed someone. Mindy called me up. She asked if I could come to the stage and read the part with cast member Beth Howland and the director and producers. If I got the stamp of approval, I'd go right into hair and makeup, costuming, shoot the show that evening. I was approved. It was my first TV comedy job, but here's the point I missed. Mindy didn't bring me in to audition for Caveman Carl originally. I hadn't had any luck with her or any television auditions up until this point. Mindy brought me in, in spite of my failures. After each one of my failed auditions, like any actor, I beat myself up. I saw each one of my meetings with Mindy as a defeat. My future going up in flames. It's a natural impulse to punish oneself after a personal failure. The bad parent inside of us feels we deserve it. But the damage from this is greater than we suspect. It kills the hero we carry in our hearts. This creates a dangerous new narrative that we don't even belong in our own dream. Instead of representing our joy, our passion begins to represent our torment. No imagination can save you when you become your own hunted. I told the young man and his father the hardest thing to maintain in Hollywood is faith in yourself. Rejection is a big part of that. But remember my story. My first victory came from my rejections. What does the world look like where even your failures can become your victory? It's a world of hope and second chances, and antibiotics, and 10,000 steps. It's a world where everywhere you go, it's always morning.
0: Take me the wind came up, I closed my eyes. I heard a shout to my surprise. A hand reached out pulled me back to safety. What say
1: that was the fifth dimension revisited a series of stories as told by actor Steven Tobolasky? You're listening to the Tobolaski Files. Stephen, I'm reminded of this quote from The Simpsons. You ever watch The Simpsons back oh in the day? It's still on the air now, but
2: oh, really. Uh, yes, yeah, so always, always. Really so it was part days. of the evening routine, yeah.
1: I think it was uh, Lisa Simpson that said the the word for crisis and opportunity in Chinese is the same, and Homer Simpson says crisitunity, <laughs> which, uh, anyway, I, that's not actually a word in Chinese, but uh, I, uh, I thought of that idea when you were uh, talking about how failure can often lead to something good yes <laughs> yes well anyway Stephen uh, until next week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files where can people find video versions of these stories online
2: youtube slash Tobofiles dot com nope you, you got it wrong
1: again Stephen <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god <laughs> well, One day you will get this One day you will get this It's youtube.com slash Tobofiles
2: Okay Okay I got it YouTube just just, just just start
1: with the youtube.com And go from there You know what,
2: okay. what I mean? <laughs> YouTube.com
1: I'm keeping all this in the episode by the way Slash
2: Tobofiles Yes I got it
1: Alright alright uh, Anyway Thanks for checking that out. Thanks to Simplecast for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and making The Tobolowski Files possible. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytics service. And until next week, uh, we'll see you later on The Tobolowski Files.
2: Adios.